This podcast is brought to you by JDRF Australia and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Andrew Gagan, and welcome to the T1D Tune-In. T1D used to be known as juvenile diabetes and is often regarded as a disease affecting just children, but they never grow out of it. In this series, we'll hear from adults with type 1 who are leading inspirational lives. We'll also talk to the brilliant researchers working on exciting new treatments and striving to find a cure. In this episode, we get to know an entrepreneur whose diagnosis of type 1 triggered a passion for nutrition. Diabetes definitely did lead to this spark in natural health and without having been diagnosed, I don't think that I would have gone down this road that I did. You know the saying, you are what you eat. Well, Anna was frustrated with the lack of skincare products that are natural, safe and quite frankly good enough to eat. That led her to establish her business, Edible Beauty. Anna Mitzios, welcome to the T1D TuneIn podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Now, you were diagnosed with type 1 at the age of 18. Now, of course, that is an age when you can finally celebrate your independence. Take us back to that time. I was actually my first year of university and I was actually really enjoying being independent and uh, I had a part-time job and I was um, just getting used to, I guess, the the new life that was um, a little bit less restrictive than high school. And I was actually really enjoying being quite healthy. I remember um, getting on this real health kick and um, enjoying seeing that I had been losing a little bit of weight and um, people were starting to notice and my clothing was getting a little bit looser and I thought, wow, you know, what I'm doing is really working. And, uh, you know, of course, alongside those, you know, benefits came the fact that I was, you know, incredibly tired and I was probably losing a little bit too much weight and, I, and my mouth was constantly dry and I kept on drinking, you know, this massive bottle of water that I had. I was just getting through it um, pretty quickly and you know, refilling it every day a couple of times. And, so I was also finding that the screen, the, the university lecturer's screen that I was looking at was hard to see. And I was putting all these things together thinking, well, in isolation, there was nothing really strange about any of them. But um, together, I just started to think that maybe there was something else going on. And I guess that's what really started the, the whole journey down the type one route. Yes. Yeah, so when you were actually diagnosed, you went to the doctor just tell us about your thoughts at that time. Yeah, yeah. So I th- the main reason I went to the doctor was I was feeling so thirsty and, and pretty tired. And he took out one of those old school blood glucose meters, which was quite big, and um, pricked me and did a blood test. And he said, and I didn't actually see the number, but he said, oh, it's actually off the, the scale. So you're going to have to go home, have your final dinner. Um, I don't know if he did call it a final dinner, but that's actually what I, what I think he said. Have your dinner and then check yourself into St. George Hospital, which was the hospital down the road from us. And so um, I went home and I can remember the last massive meal of pasta that I had. And off to the hospital I went and really naive, had no idea what was ahead at that time. Um, and then, of course, had all the, the tests done and you know, got a drip put in and, and then came all of the education around injections mm. and so on. Yeah, last supper, that does sound very <laughs> final, doesn't it? Yeah. So you, you were in your first year of university studying commerce. How do you think 
you managed diabetes at that age? Well, I was actually pretty good, I would say, in the first year or two. I was actually doing everything that I was told to do. I was pretty religious with my carb counting. I was actually doing everything that I was told to do and can remember the first HbA1c score of 7.2. I was told that that was fairly good and I thought, oh, well, okay, so it's not so bad. I think what happened after that first year was that I started to feel like I could actually handle it on my own and I started to manipulate things a little bit, like skipping meals or cutting doses of insulin and I guess ultimately what what my aim was was trying to actually take less insulin than what I was supposed to because I thought that by doing so I wouldn't be getting the the, um, impact of that insulin weight being put on. And so I think for a few years after after the first year of being diagnosed, I, I really did try to take it into my own hands and dismissed a lot of advice and, and things that was being being given to me, which actually worked to my detriment because I think that 7.2 was the best number I had for a few years. So I think you could say I was a little bit rebellious or I was just, I guess, also trying to to not really let diabetes rule my life. And so I was not giving it as much attention as, as maybe what I should have. And now what I'm doing is paying a lot of attention to it, but not really letting it dictate the course of my life either. So I think there's um, you know, a balance between becoming a little bit obsessive about blood sugar control and, and also becoming a little bit too blase about it, but then having that fine balance of caring about it, but not letting it really dictate your entire life and, and everything about what you do. And of course, you were at that age when a lot of young women are very conscious of their weight. So I gather you experimented with different diets. I did. Yeah, I did some crazy things with diets and I actually am a little bit embarrassed to talk about them, but I did things like, you know, eating apples only, doing green juice fast and doing very low carb meals. And at that time, I think it was called the Atkins diet, kind of like our keto diet equivalent was big at that time. And so I did experiment with a lot of diets, which I guess you would say a fattish and weren't sustainable in any way, shape or form. And um, I would highly recommend that no one does any of these because I did actually find that it did really create an imbalance in my life and and you don't really need to to be that extreme when it comes to to diets in order to manage your sugars. I think if anything, those diets that led to worse control than better control. But yeah, you're right. I think it was really a struggle dealing with diabetes and this whole body image. I guess I wouldn't say it was an obsession, but uh, a concern around body image, which was something that all of my friends and and my sisters were actually experiencing at the same time. So I think I, I did feel like I wanted to be able to have that perfect figure without, you know, letting diabetes control me and control what I was eating. So Anna, you completed your commerce degree and embarked on a career in finance, but was that really what you wanted to do? No. And so from, I guess it would have been the second year into starting to work in finance, I actually started to study natural medicine and it was nutrition and naturopathy. And at that time you could start doing some of these courses by distance. So uh, I remember enrolling into them and, and starting to study by distance, but also doing weekend intensives and evening classes and basically becoming really quite, I guess, obsessed with um, nutrition and, and 
and herbs and that became a real passion for me and I and the more I I studied them the more I felt like well it wasn't really my calling to be in finance and so I did actually become a little bit resentful of of the day-to-day work that I was doing and, and felt that it wasn't really where my heart did lie and so I did continue to study and um I studied uh, for probably about six years and and did work in finance for almost 10 years before I decided it was really time to actually just pursue this career properly and so I, I quit my day job and I enrolled into full-time school and, and that was the Australian College of Natural Therapies at that time and they were just in Surrey Hills and I became a student a- again and really was I guess a little bit ignorant about what the path that that did lie ahead was but I was really keen to make that inroad into natural health because I felt like I had so much value to add there because I had so much life experience and I had been learning so much along the way. What actually sparked that initial interest in, in nutrition and tropathy? Yeah. Well, it's actually, was that actually yeah. was it prompted by your diabetes? It, it definitely was. So I was always, I guess, health conscious, but I was never one to really think that I would be studying it or, or getting really deep in deep into you know science and and um, nutrition. And so what happened was when I was diagnosed, along with the trying to minimise insulin use, etc., um, and manage my blood sugars, was this real interest in in herbs and, and things that could help my lifestyle and, and help my diabetes management. And I remember, it must have been the first year I was diagnosed buying this supplement that was a, a blood sugar support supplement and thinking, oh, wow, this is great. This is going to really cut down my insulin. And of course, it, you know, these things don't, they, they su- support your body in a very mild way. But of course, I did find that there were certain things that were really helping me with other aspects of the condition and, and stress. And and also, I felt like exercising was, you know, one of the key things that really kept me going, um, even when I felt like my sugars were a little bit out of control. So diabetes definitely did lead to this spark in natural health. And Without having been diagnosed, I don't think that I would have gone down this road that I did. And you began experimenting, making your own skincare products. Tell us about that. Yeah. So actually, this happened when I had completed my qualifications and I was a naturopath at a clinic um, in Bondi Junction. And I was recommending that people stop using toxic products on their skin. And at that time, there weren't very many natural alternatives. And I had this idea of, well, you know, if we're putting something on our skin, it should be literally pure enough that you could eat it. But why isn't there any edible skincare? So I actually uh, started mixing up things like rose water and, and coconut oil in my my mum's KitchenAid and concocting various creams and oils and things which I was giving to my, my clients, my family and friends. And um, ultimately, this ended up becoming a little bit more serious than a kitchen project. It became Edible Beauty Australia, which is the business that I have at the moment. Yes. So you realized then that you could actually, this was more than just a a hobby and a passion. You could actually make a career out of this and that led to you establishing Edible Beauty. Yeah, definitely. So I did, I did realize that it was a little bit more than just a, a passion project and that I could actually make a career out of it. And that was actually really eye opening in a way because I had been 
told by various people and I could see the doubt in a lot of people when I stopped this full-time job that was paying quite well that, you know, there was a little bit of doubt as to what I would be doing next and whether it would be paying the bills. But it was, yeah, it was great to be able to prove them wrong, to be honest. Is it fair to say you've taken a holistic approach to beauty? Because you've also come up with a range of teas. Yeah, that's spot on. So the teas reflect the herbal formulas I was giving my clients and they're herbs that I feel work really well to address conditions that people have on the inside. So yeah, there's the skincare which works topically and then there's the ingestible products which help with conditions and support conditions which people are having but work from the inside out. I gather you were also frustrated with the lack of skincare products suitable for pregnant women. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's actually what what sparked the the whole concept of edible beauty um, because women are really exposed to so many chemicals on a day-to-day basis. I think something like 500 chemicals every day that we're putting on our skin topically. And I guess it's interesting from a, an autoimmune perspective as well because a lot of these toxins can impact us hormonally and can actually create an imbalance in our immune system as well. And it it can seem like it's mild, but over many years of applying products on our skin, and I'm often shocked to find that, you know, six-year-olds are starting to wear lipstick and um, their mum's skincare. Those toxins or chemicals can bioaccumulate in skin cells. So we actually aren't really aware of how much damage that can actually cause over a period of time. interesting that there's a rising rate of infertility and there's also a lot of well there's a rise in issues with newborns now and and allergies and asthma and even things like attention deficit disorder and what we find when we look at the umbilical cause of babies and studies have shown that there's almost 250 chemicals linked to personal care products women are using and so I guess my my real interest in creating something that, that was pure and edible was that, well, we can actually have something that's, you know, really effective and beautiful to use on our skin that doesn't contribute to that toxic load which we're passing onto our babies when we are pregnant. But I don't think it should be just for pregnant women. I think all women as such, both men and women, I guess, should be more conscious of what they're putting on their skin in general. And you're talking from first-hand experience. You fell pregnant. What challenges did you face managing your diabetes? It was a really challenging time, actually, because if you um, have ever experienced changing blood sugar levels as a you know as maybe a teenager when your hormones kick in think about that but it's it's amplified a little bit more because your hormones are changing so quickly and so my blood sugar levels uh, were were being reviewed by my fantastic endocrinologist almost twice a week and changes were being made to my basal rates and my carb ratios etc And that was quite challenging, actually. And there was a real, not only a real concern over my own health, because I did have an eye condition, which got a little bit worse during that time and actually has corrected since um, having had the baby, but a concern for for my baby as well and, and wanting to make sure that I was doing everything that I could to make sure my sugars were under control and that he was going to be in good health. So I think, yeah, pregnancy is a it can be a wonderful time, can be also a very challenging time. But when you add diabetes into the mix, it can be a little, a little bit challenging, I must say. But um, I think my endocrinologist put it really well. And he said, there's nothing that motivates a woman more than an unborn baby. And that is spot on because you do do anything and everything that it takes to to make sure you're looking after this this little one in you. 
Anna, your son Dimitri is now 13 months old. Do you worry that he may develop diabetes? It really is a concern for me and it has been from before he was even born, to be honest. And there are some things we can't control and I think that is one of them. But I do actually make sure that his gut health is in check and I give him various probiotics and make sure his diet's really great and, you know, I'm giving him things like my collagen powder, which is vitamin C in it. And uh, I guess I take that extra bit of care with him and, and have started even supplementing a few little things which are safe for babies and um, which I feel more alleviate my worry about him than to really do anything. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're obviously really conscious about what you're putting into your own body. So that would apply, obviously, to, to your son as well. Definitely. And I think that we becoming, I guess, more conscious in general of what, what we're giving our babies and, and even what as you said, what we're putting on ourselves. But I guess that I was given some great advice when he was born and that was to breastfeed him um, for at least 12 months because that gives him all that beneficial immune-boosting nutrients in, in mum's milk. So I've been doing that and um, have been, I guess, probably taking a little bit of extra care with him when it comes to wrapping him up in clothing and making sure he doesn't get any colds and flus and things like that. Anna, I've, I've asked you about your management of diabetes. Now, I know that you are prone to hypos. Do you feel as though that's held you back at all? No, actually, I remember being asked this before and, and thinking, oh, well, has diabetes really set me back at all? Has it stopped me from doing anything that I really wanted to do? And I have to say it hasn't. If anything, I think that it's really given me motivation to do more maybe six years ago, I did do a half marathon and that was probably uh, my way of proving that I could do it. And uh, hypos weren't an issue there. And I guess I you know, have been able to start a business and, and work in that business and, and make it successful. And I've been able to have a baby. I had a fear of driving, which held me back for a little bit, but I did get over that. And so yeah, I have to say that there's nothing really that diabetes has held me back from doing. I think if anything, I, I'm quite grateful, as I mentioned before, I don't think I would have really gone down that natural health path if I hadn't been diagnosed. So do you feel as though technology, which of course is improving all the time, that has actually helped you manage your condition? It definitely has helped and it has come so far in the last 20 years. So when I was diagnosed, I was actually on syringe injections and I was having to go into the bathroom to deliver my meals, my dinner boluses. Um, and now you, you think about the pump and how discreet that is and how easy that is to use. But also the fact that we don't have to be pricking our fingers as much with sensor technology. And we've got so much insight into what our blood sugar is doing overnight even, which is incredible. So I'm really grateful for all this technology that's that definitely makes life easier. I do often think, though, that... You can never really take take your attention away from looking at what you're eating and, you know, actually being conscious of what your blood sugars are because the technology, whilst it's helpful, it doesn't really make it okay to forget that you've got diabetes for a day. So I do think all of these tools really assist, but that you can't really just let go of any sort of control when it comes to paying attention to what you're eating or what your blood sugars are doing. Do you feel as though a cure is attainable or do you think it's more likely to come down to improved treatments? It's funny because I 
was always looking out for cures in the first decade of being diagnosed. And I was always really hopeful when I heard that there was some research being done on something or, or someone or someone had, had received a stem cell treatment or, or something like that that made their life easier. But I have to say that I'm not so hopeful, um, but I am really sure that this improved technology will make our life so much easier and that it will be almost just like not having diabetes because we've been given all of these tools that help us to keep our sugars in check. And Anna, you've established a family, a career, a business. What's the future hold? Well, that's a great question. So one of the things that I'm really wanting to do is actually turn my attention back to type 1 and back to this community of people who do have type 1 and assist in, in some way, shape or form. And so that is ultimately, I think, what my purpose is. And so I think the next step for me will be either doing more one-on-one consultations and helping from a naturopathic standpoint or doing something else which really gives back to that type 1 community. And Amitsios, lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Andrew. If you'd like to find out more about JDRF Australia or get involved with their various initiatives supporting the Australian T1D community, visit their website, jdrf.org.au. For all the latest updates on T1D research, search JDRF Australia on Facebook or follow them on Instagram under at JDRFAUS. And keep an ear out for more episodes in our T1D TuneIn series, wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Until then, I'm Andrew Gagan. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are broadcast for informational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice. Consult your team of healthcare professionals for health or personal advice that is right for you. We'll be right back.